You're listening to Wood Talk Online with your hosts, Mark and Matt. Take it away, boys. Welcome to Wood Talk Online, a podcast for woodworkers by woodworkers. This is episode 19 for October 9th, 2007. I'm Mark Spagnolo, and if you have a question or comment, you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a message at 623 623- Two four two two four five zero. Now, in case you didn't notice, things are a little bit different today. Uh, we have a very, very special guest. He is—he's uh, larger than life. He's hotter than Jessica Alba, and he is dangerous with an ArborTech blade. He's Tom Iovino. Hi, Mark. Hey, Tom. How's it going? Doing great. How you doing? Fantastic. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm really. I'm. I'm dangerous to myself when I'm out in the shop. That's why I have that big first aid kit out there. <laughs> and the uh, and the chainmail suit too. Of course. Yeah. I, I always put on my armor before I go out and cut. Right. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom is one of our uh, probably our most prolific author on uh, the Wood Talk Online blog. And um, there's a little blurb up there about your history and what you're all about. But uh, maybe we should refresh people's memory, let them know uh, what your woodworking background is, where you live, all that good jazz, if you sure. want to. Well, Mark, you know, I mean, my name I go by on a lot of these message boards is Tampa Tom. So that should yep. give you an idea. I live in Toledo. Oh, there Ohio. you go. That makes sense. There we go. <laughs> no, I'm actually enjoying the <laughs> west coast of Florida. And um, I've been doing this now with the woodworking thing for about 10 years. I am strictly the uh, weekend warrior type. I um, I hold a day job. Okay. And uh, I don't like to admit it, but I do hold a day job. My parole officer says it's it's better that way. <laughs> it um, stops him from asking actually, questions. There we go. Yeah, this, yeah. Just <laughs> it, it's always better when they don't ask questions. Yeah. Um, actually, my day job is I'm a, I'm a public information officer, which means I like to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. I'm so you know introverted. You're I a, never actually speak up. You are so. you are a bit chatty, Tom. No, me? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Yeah. Yes, I am. Now, now I do want to bring up an interesting point. I live in Tampa, uh-huh. okay, in the Tampa Bay area. You live in the middle of the desert. I do. Okay. Now, my, my question to you is this. How could two woodworkers live in worse places to get wood yeah. and take up this cra- – you know, if we took up tennis, I'd understand. Yeah. <laughs> if we took up golf, I'd understand. Right. But woodworking – you know, down here, I can get you some slash pine if you want it. Yeah. Or unless you want to make things out of palm trees. Yeah, or just swamp uh, growth or whatever it is. Yeah, you guys yeah, have. something like that. Well, you're <laughs> building things out of saguaro cactus. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's that's a, a very valid point. I get that question a lot as far as what are our resources around here. Now, I, I don't really know for sure what the supply chain is and, and how this works out. But I do have a few suppliers that have better prices than I had when I was in Southern California. You well, know? there's another place that's known for known for its hardwood forest. Oh yeah, there you go. But at <laughs> least it's probably a little a little bit closer to some resources. But um, I guess I'm kind of guessing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess the bottom line is, I guess it's all it, most of it really just comes in from somewhere else. You know, I mean, it's all coming in from the, the most uh, the areas where most of that stuff is coming from in the first place. So, you know, I'm, some of these places have suppliers. They skip the the guy right next door and go to the guy who's selling a couple bucks cheaper, five hundred miles north. You know. Yeah, um, and, and that way they make some sort of deal. But you know, it's kind of amazing. You sit here in Florida, and you know, I'm, I'm walking around to my hardwood supplier, and the stuff they're getting is incredible. Yeah. And and I'm looking at this, you know, curly maple and this and his cherry and, and you know, they're getting all the exotics too, right. which it doesn't matter where you live, you're gonna get exotics, you know. Yep. It doesn't matter if it goes to California or to Florida from you know, South America. Yeah, so. it's all imported anyway. 
Yeah. Um, so it doesn't really matter. You're not at a disadvantage there. But I always hear these people. Oh, yeah, I live in the woods in western Pennsylvania. I buy my cherry for like three cents a board foot. <laughs> and it's beautiful all red. I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's when you want to rent that trailer. Just yeah. drive up and come back with as much as you can take. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know what? I guess it's it's definitely going to be regionally dependent and uh, luck of the draw a little bit. I mean, anytime I've been to Northern California, um, you know, there's a lot of walnut up there. And walnut sure. is no cheaper than it is down here. Really? Yeah. And I mean, uh, I've gone to um, where Nicole's family's from in Missouri. Now, that's a place where you're going to find a lot of the deals like you just described, because a lot of times it's just some guy with, a, a, you know, one of these big uh, portable mills who out there knocking, you know, cutting up things that are just knocked down in a windstorm. Yeah, basically. So it's a lot of recovered material and they can sell it off real cheap for a couple bucks a board foot and they're selling it by the slab. So it, but it is a very interesting point that we can even, you know, get anything done around here. I mean, yeah. that there's even that much of a market for it. You know, it's crazy. There's a uh, there's a historical museum right by my house. I mean, I could bike there in about five minutes. Yeah. And it's, you know, from, you know, 1890s till about 1940. Okay. Uh, Pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the woodwork was actually done in the, in the Southern Pines. Okay. And it, beautiful stuff. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You hear a lot of people knock working with pine, but these people had no problem with it. Right. These craftspeople, they made do what they had, and it was really good stuff. Well, there's so, you know, I've always heard good things about southern yellow pine. And Well, if you want some, <laughs> bring a trailer. We, I've got two big slash pines in my backyard. I figure by the time they're going to plant me in the ground, they'll be big enough. Somebody, somebody can build a coffin. <laughs> there you go. Well, I've, I've heard that the, specifically southern yellow pine is just uh, much – it doesn't have the properties that most people associate with standard pine as far as being soft. Um, is, no. I mean, I've never worked with is that. Is that true? Is that – Oh, it, it, it's, it's some tough stuff. Okay. It, um, you know, it, you know, I'll get out there and I build, you know, I build, you know, usually around the holidays, I get, uh, I'll start building cradles or rocking horses. You know, there's a pregnancy crisis center down the street and I always drop things off anonymously. Okay. Not that, you know, I'm going there to visit cause I need their services, but, <laughs> but, you know, I go down, you know, not, not this week at least. Yeah. Right. But I go down there and I drop off, you know, these, these, these things I built usually during the summer, the early fall okay. when it's steaming hot. And um and and what happens is I usually build them out of southern yellow pine, which is really available, and and that you know three cents a board foot. I was going to say what it's, what it's is the price? The what is the price on that stuff? Oh geez, it is it is it is less expensive than the white pine. Oh wow, and it's clear, okay. and there's like no knots. Now the stuff you buy that's pressure treated looks like heck. Okay, but you know, but the but the stuff out there you can you know put in southern pine flooring and right. all this stuff, and it is it is very reasonable stuff, and it's really respectful to work with, respectable. Yeah. The only problem is it's got that you know we we, we call it exotic Florida zebra wood down here. <laughs> it's got that really wild grain pattern. Does it, it really? Okay, it, it does, and it's very pronounced. And um, but is it you know, it's unpredictable? There, I guess it, it, it'll. It'll work. I mean, you know, you, you, usually I treat it with shellac. Okay. That's, you know, it seems to be kind of a standard type of uh, finish for that kind of wood. Okay. And it really makes it look nice. But, you know, you look at it, it's like it's got that whole, you know, zebra wood effect. It looks like a zebra running by. Oh, wow. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> it, it's kind of fun, but it, but it is really hard work, hard wood to work with yeah. um, as, far as, as, as far as, you know, the, the hardness of it. It just splinters. Oh, okay. All and right. you got to be careful about that. It's a little more fragile yeah. that way. After my recent memories of uh, spending months with Wengi, I'm uh, I'm kind of done with splintery wood for a little while. Yeah, you might want to go to like maple for that. After that, you know, get rid of the yeah. splinters for a little bit. Yeah, maple or cherry, something that's a, you know alder, maybe something that's a lot more forgiving than that. Now, yeah, I, I got a question for you. Now, you live, you know, speaking in just basically, we have that in common as far as having no. Uh, 
uh, trees that are native to our areas. Um, sure. The other thing that's curious now we have that that's the exact opposite. You guys get some serious humid weather, and I've gotten nothing really. So now, what what kind of things do you usually do? I mean, do you take any special precautions and change the way you work in this season versus the way you might work when it's a little bit drier? Or, or you know, how does it change? Like, I, what's coming I, up I, for you? I drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> that'll get you through. <laughs> yeah, that'll get me through. It'll get me through after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I did a few years ago was buy an air conditioner for the shop. Oh, really? And okay. That, you know, because I used to, when I first started this, I used to um, take the summers off. Okay. I used to finish the last project in April and then start up again in late October. Gotcha. It's just too doggone hot to be outside. Mm-hmm. As far as the humidity, um, you know, I, I leave it in the shop to acclimate. And I really don't build big projects during the summer because I'm really, you know, or, or if I'm building bigger projects, I'll use them with plywood. Okay. Uh, because you get so much crazy movement with the wood. Sure, sure. Um, and then inside the house, you know, if you I build something and it stays inside, I mean, it's it's air conditioned year round. Okay. You know, it, it's you know we keep the air conditioning running during the summer, so they really get a humidity. And um, you know, in the winter, it's pretty much comparable to an air conditioned inside. Gotcha. Believe it or not, the humidity does drop off. Okay. <laughs> you know, it does. It believe you know, really, it does. Yeah. You know, it does drop off, and you get December, January. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, that's now you living in the big hair dryer out there in the desert. <laughs> yeah, pretty you know, much. What, yeah. what do you do? I mean, you have to like spritz the water, spritz the wood down, or is it crumble in your hands? Well, the good thing about living here is you don't really have to do much of anything. There's no uh, preventative measures that you could really take. What what might wreak havoc on your materials is during monsoon. If you move it into a sauna. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that, that certainly could do the trick, yeah. Uh, but if you if you uh, if you're not prepared for the monsoon season, uh, when that comes around, the humidity jumps up, and um, most of the time you could just kind of punch through it and not have to worry about it. But uh, mm-hmm. if you happen to be in the middle of a project and you've got some raw wood that you've just planed down, um, does it, it mu- turn into a hockey stick? It could very well do that. Uh, okay. You could have some problems, but for the most part, if I had to choose a place to live as far as predictability with wood. I'm there. I would rather be in a drier climate that is more predictable and constant throughout the year than one that's going to change on me and my work methods have to change throughout the year. You know, it, it is it is interesting to watch, you know, what happens to yeah. wood out there. And like I said, you know, I really try to stay away from building large projects with, with, with solid wood yes. in the summer. Usually it's smaller things like jewelry boxes or things like that in the summer, something I can do some work and then go back into the air conditioning. Right. Or, um, or you know, or or pull something on plywood. You know, I'll build something on a plywood and have no problem with it. Right. Um, it, it just you know when you get into these big you know if you want to build a hope chest with uh, you know with solid wood, it's gonna start giving you a little bit of trouble. But yeah. you know, hey, you know, you do what you do. You yeah. know. Well, and that's the thing I think for a lot of beginning woodworkers, it's. Uh, I know for me it was a big surprise when I was told that I actually have to pay attention to something like wood movement. You know, I was actually, I thought, okay, I got this all down. I kind of have an idea how to cut wood, how to glue it together. And then someone throws this monkey wrench into the works and says, oh, you should probably prepare for this to move. You know, and all of a sudden that realization hits you. And you go, oh, crap, this is a little bit more complex than I thought it was. Yeah, it's it's not quite as simple and straightforward, you know. (laughs) And, And, you know, God bless Norm. Yeah, yeah. Go really. God bless Norm, but you know he builds the same way no matter what. He gets it all done in <laughs> half an hour. Yeah, that he does. I, mean, I want to know how he does that. Uh, he, you know, jacked on caffeine. What's going on? He's got very fast hands. It's it's like light, like lightning. That's what I heard that about Norm. I heard that a lot about him. <laughs> you know, it was funny actually. I remember one episode. You can't even remember what he was building, but he had a classic cross grain situation that was just 
I mean, there was no way around it. it. It's going to be a problem at some point. And his his answer was just like, well, we know this is a cross-grain situation, but um, we just couldn't think of any other way to do it. And he pops a few Brad nails into it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Pachoo, pachoo, and then you're done. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's quick that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes you got to do what you got to do, but uh, obviously it behooves everyone to uh, pay attention to the climate, the, the weather, and, uh, you know, where – it's always good to think about where is this – piece of furniture going to go and what type of environment will it live in for most of its uh, most of its life sure. you know so. and again like i said down here you know our seasons are reversed of the people up north right um, you know up north everybody's staying inside the winter it's, it's dark it's cold everybody's in the heated area yeah and here in the summer that's our time we go inside and stay in the air conditioning yeah same thing when, here you know, October rolls around, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to go golf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, actually, we just finally uh, got some work done in the backyard. So we're uh, enjoying the barbecue and, you know, having some uh, some nights out by the, the little fire pit that we have out there. It's This is our time in, you know, in Arizona to uh, to actually come out and enjoy the weather. So, As opposed to, you know, staying inside, you know, trying to avoid being fried to a crisp there on the sidewalk. Yeah, exactly. Now, how cold does it get uh, in Tampa in the winter? What's the coldest day you'll usually have? I got got a real funny story about this. It it can get pretty cold. Usually it's in the 50s, 60s as a a low, like in dead of January. Okay. One morning, I remember I was was, – I was walking outside. Maybe they had a cold snap. Every so often they do this. It scares all the citrus farmers. (laughs) Right. And, and, And I'm walking outside. I was living on a beach. And I, I could see the, the bay. I was actually on the bay side of a, of a barrier island. Okay. And I've got my coat on. And it, it's cr- one of those crystal clear blue sky days. And I'm walking out, and the, the, uh, the uh, uh, sprinklers were on. And we got some overdraft because of some wind. It was drifting over the uh, sidewalk. Mm-hmm. I took a step onto what I thought was wet pavement, ended up on my back. Uh-oh. And I'm staring up at the beautiful blue sky, thinking to myself, I just slipped on ice in Florida. <laughs> There's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> yeah, that's not supposed to happen, I don't think. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, but you can get you can get days like that, you know, and everybody gets nervous, the strawberry farmers, the citrus farmers, oh, they all get a little nervous. Yeah, freak out a but, little uh, bit. You know, you know, we're talking, you know, days in the 70s, lows in 50s, 40s, somewhere around so there. That's not it's, terribly bad. I mean, it, it's it's refreshing. It's you know, ba- now, bearable. You know, Key West, they're in a whole other world down there. Oh, okay. You know, Key West, it's like never gets below 65 or 70. So, gotcha. Okay. Well, there you yeah, go. you know, it's a big okay. state. Yeah, definitely. The Florida's one of those big states, so well, you know, you got a lot of variability. Right. Well, that's yeah. uh, you know, big states are like that. Um, you know, speaking of cold weather, I actually am um heading up next week to well, we're recording this a week early for anyone okay. who's smart enough to figure that out. Um, so this will be, we actually use the time machine to make this happen. <laughs> yeah. So when, uh, when this is released, I will be in the, uh, the great Northeast, um, heading up to Connecticut to, uh, spend some time with our, our good buddies over there at a uh, fine woodworking up at a uh, Taunton press. Oh, so, sweet. yeah. So, uh, I'm really interested to see, uh, you know, if it's going to, what is it going to be like October 10th, October 9th, I yeah, wonder how yeah, cold yeah. it's going to be there. I'm kind of guessing you better bring a sweater. You think? You think? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking you better bring a sweater. Well, every time we go back for uh, my wife's Christmas party in uh, in DC, I bring my hooded sweatshirt and that's, you know, my my jacket and that's uh that's my winter coat. 
Well, yeah, um, I don't have many of them hanging around in my closet either. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Every time I do that, I'm like, you know, I am not going out and buying like a winter coat just for this one particular trip. But I say that every time I take that one particular trip. So uh, maybe I should invest in a winter coat someday. Go to one of those discount stores, Marshalls or something like that, and buy yeah. yourself a $30 coat, okay? Are you kidding me? I got to look good, man. I need something well, with well, like they always look good, you know? leather or... Uh, leather, listen to you. What are you, a fashion plate now? Yeah, well, you know. Hey, what, are you, what are you, fancy? Do you have fancy footwear? <laughs> Do you have like Bruno Molly boots for your work in the shop with or what? I'll just, uh, I'll just go get one at Marshalls and I'll uh, pick up the Bedazzler <laughs> and jazz it up a little little bit for myself. Yeah, yeah, just remember you're married, so you don't have to look too impressive. Okay? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And yeah, that's the great, one of the great joys of being married. <laughs> you so. let yourself go. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. So, um, but yeah, the, the whole deal is, uh, we're going up there to do a little bit of, a. Uh, you know, I don't know what the hell we're doing up there, but um, you're going to touch wood somewhere. Yeah, we're just going to uh, shake hands and kiss babies and stuff. But um, and shake actually, babies and kiss hands, right? Yeah, I said that once yeah. before, and Nicole looked at me like I was crazy. I guess she never <laughs> she never heard that. But um, we're we're going to be doing a little bit of a feature on on I guess the process of how they produce an article for the magazine. So okay, um, some cool interviews and on location stuff. It'll just be something that I. I Personally, I'm curious how the process works out. So, uh, should be okay. a lot of fun. But um, the Arizona people will be up in the in the Northeast, getting getting chilly, getting freezing, freezing. I'm getting telling you, you get that thin blood living down south, and that's it. It's all. It's over. amazing how fast you forget. I mean, geez, uh, 22 years, 23 years in in Jersey, and all of a sudden, just a couple years in California and Arizona, and I'm a big blood baby. Thins right out, you're all over. No, you're not kidding. People walk around in shorts and a in a sweatshirt when it's 30 degrees outside. You're bundled up. <laughs> right. It's like you're going to Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it, That's what happens. But all right, Tommy boy, what do you say we move into a couple of these uh, fancy little email things that we sure, get Sure, let's talk and see if I can maybe make some sense tonight. Yeah, see if you got some insights for us. Now, uh, we've got our first email here from Dan the Man, and uh, Dan says that he's considering getting a drum sander. Okay. Uh, so he asks, uh, how much do you use yours? How does it fit into your workflow? What tasks do you use it for? And have you been happy with, I guess he's talking to me specifically, with your Performax? And uh, also wants to know if it can be used to roll out pie crust. You know, that's really interesting with you know Thanksgiving coming along. I should invest in one of these. Well, you know. Uh, it'll roll pie crust. Uh, yeah. I mean, my wife likes to make homemade pastas, and um, she also makes some pizza. So I, I think that would be fantastic for that. It might be a little, you know, but then again, you know, look at the kitchen equipment they're selling out there these days. You know, $700 <laughs> for a stand mixer, okay. Yeah, that's... You know, just go buy the Performax. You're all set. Two that's true. One stone. Exactly. Just uh, keep the sandpaper off of there, and I think it'll work. Um, well, you know, you get better grip on the on the dough that way. Right. If you leave it on. Just go for a cor- more coarse grip. <laughs> there you go. And right, call now, your dentist um, after you eat the pie. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Now, I know, I, I assume you you don't have a uh, a drum sander in your shop, right, Tom? No, I don't. But I'll tell you, when you talk a little bit about this, I want to tell you what I do. Okay. That's good. Because I got some workarounds. Yeah, I, I would love to hear those. Because the thing is, a lot of times when you get these tools that are just really just time savers, I mean, you could certainly work around them, but they save you time. It's amazing how quick you forget the other methods that you used to use to do things. Oh, sure. Uh, and I, I, you know, I try not to do that because it's my job to sort of educate on all levels, but I tend to, to forget these things. So I would love to hear what you have to say, but, um, I use the drum sander in nearly every single project. Now, mm-hmm. um, if you think of the workflow, you're going to go from your jointer to your planer. And then most people at that point, you're either doing joinery or, 
um, you know, something else. But typically my workflow is joiner, planer, drum sander, then everything else. And I typically yeah. run it at about 80 grit to, to do a nice um, rough sanding, get all the machining marks out. And then I'll go back after I do some joinery work with it and I'll give it a nice light sanding at maybe, uh, you know, up to probably about 180 so that when it's all said and done, I can hit it with uh, either by hand or with the random orbit sander with 180 grit. And uh, that gives me a really nice finish. So it is probably, uh, I don't even know where I'd rank it, but it's pretty darn high on my list of what I now consider to be uh, a necessity for the shop. Oh, sure. You know, once you, once you get a tool like that, I imagine, you know, well, I mean, you know, when I started out, I was hand ripping boards with a, with a rip saw. Right. You know, when I started, I had a little, you know, double-sided Japanese saw and I was ripping and, you know, <laughs> when it took you 10 minutes to rip a piece. Right. It was like, okay, maybe a table saw is in my future. <laughs> you know, I, I, okay, I'm not a Luddite. Okay. I'll, I'll work with hand tools. But I can see you sitting there, you know, too bad they don't make something for this. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, one of these days they should invent something, but I'll tell you, I had a big, strong right arm. There I you go. I my gym membership, so I was all good. Nice. You look like uh, Popeye on one side. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Why the one arm kind of had to lean into it, lean into it a little bit. <laughs> kind of keep from falling over. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I, for anybody who's read any of the articles I've written, I'm a big hand tool guy. Right. I really am. And it's not, it's not that I'm stupid. It's not that I'm just, you know, stuck in the past and I, you know, and I, you know, and I ride my horse and buggy into work. Me, Tom. It, me use tool. Me use tool. I use a sharpened <laughs> rock, you know, and try to do something with that. Right. Um, but, you know, I've, I've really, as I've developed, I've, I've discovered the hand tools and, you know, it, it doesn't take as long as you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, I'll, you know, I'll face join a piece. Now, you know, my, in my shop, what I typically think is what, you know, back in the olden days, what did the carpenter do and what did the apprentice do? Right. And when I try to buy tools, I try to think, well, what's the apprentice doing? There you go. <laughs> so, so what I do is I get a board flat and then I run it through the thickness planer. Because the apprentice would be doing that, of course. While the yeah. master carpenter goes on and does something else as coffee. So, so, so anything that the apprentice would do, I try to buy the power tools for. Okay. What I found is that it's a real interesting process of of you know things. You know, I'll get it all done. I'll get run it through the through the thickness planer, get it down to the right size, and then what I'll do is I'll attack it with the with the smoothing planes and the and the scrapers, and there is a huge difference. Mark, there's a huge difference between a hand-scraped and plain board and something that comes off the sander. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is, you know, you look at two pieces side by side. I've just bought a Japanese uh, smoothing plane. It's a piece of, you know, white oak with this really thick blade in it. Right. And I got the whole thing to the right thickness. So you can see the ripple marks. Sure. Okay, you know, you can see the ripple marks. It's, you know, it, it's going to come whenever you've got a rotary head. But I start planing that down. I'm taking these like little paper thin shavings off. Okay. You know, and I work my way across the board. And I, halfway across, I just stopped and looked at it just to see if I was, you know, scratching it up. Right. And it turns out that, you know, the one side that I had planed was just so, how do you describe it? Clear. Yeah. It, it was like you look right into the grain. Yeah. And it's a nice piece of mahogany. Right. It's like, you know, the other side looked fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And, and there was there was no comparison between the two sides. And I'll tell you, I put on two twenty, three twenty grit. I'd never get it to look that clear. No, of course, right. And and the thing is, there's nothing like you know because you're using that to shear those fibers, right. And you know, and then you touch it up with the hand scraper, anything that you know, little plane marks or whatever. You know, I, it, it 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 was it was five minutes to do that board, sure, max. Now I could have run. You know, granted, you're doing this for a living. You need the speed and efficiency. Right. For me, like I said, I'm a weekend warrior. This is what I'm doing instead of going golfing or playing tennis. Well, it's the love of the craft. I mean, that's it. it. So I'm taking my time to do this by hand, and and 
unbelievable how well this com- came along. Now, granted, I had to try to figure out how to set the plane up. Right. And that's trial and error for about an hour trying to figure <laughs> right. it out. But I first got it. Sure, sure. But now I could just I know exactly what it needs to look like and I could just start going at it. Yeah. Which, and you know, go ahead. saves a lot of time. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I actually had a, a friend of mine who um, – You have friends? I, uh, I'm paid, stunned. I paid him to act like my friend. <laughs> um, he actually had a smoothing plane, and I've never seen a plane tuned this well. And mm-hmm. he was just giving me um, – I think he even had a piece of mahogany. Um, he, he was showing me how, you know, the, how fine the shavings are. And the only thing I could really compare it to when you look at a, a – uh, a, pl- a planed board, and you get that the difference between the severed fibers uh, versus crushed fibers, which is what happens when you sand. Yeah. Um, the only thing I could say, if I were to assign a grit value from just one stroke of the smoothing plane, would probably be in the ballpark of 1,600 to maybe 2,000 grit is what oh, it easily. felt like to my fingers. Easily, and, and it's just so smooth. And the thing is, when you when you when you finish that board, I mean, there's that depth. And you know, it's funny because sometimes with the with the mechanical methods, you know, you say you're planing or you're you're, you're joining a piece of like curly maple. Sure. With that with grain all over the place, you know, you touch it the wrong way with that mechanical device, you know, that thickness plane or whatever, and it's really going to look like heck. Yeah. Going to have a lot of tear out. Yep. You get to the hand tools, and wow, it just it just the depth. Absolutely. Of that of that figure, and it just it just blows your mind. Now, do you ever have an issue when you've uh, gone through most of your smoothing, and then you're down to uh, uh, the card scrapers and, and hand scrapers? Now, at that point is usually when I start to think, God, I really would like to to hit this with a little sandpaper because I get those little fine ridges between uh, my my stroke points as I go through the process. Do you have a way of dealing with that, or are you taking such fine shavings that you're really not getting any clear marks between start and stop points? You know, that, that, that's the thing. It, it's it's kind of like when you keep going up in grit. Mm-hmm. You know, you're 220, you go to 320, you go to 400. You know, you're, you're, you're taking like less and less. Yeah. And I'll ease off the pressure on the tools. Right. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing this, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make that last couple of passes with the, uh, with the card scraper. And then you start looking at it with a raking light. You put a light to the side of the board and look across. Sure. And you may see a ridge or two. And you just hit it really lightly with that, with that card scraper. Gone. Gotcha. Just like that. Nice. And, you know, it's that, it's that, you know, you have to remember that you have to put a little touch into these tools. Right. I mean, you know, I could put my random armored sander in my oldest son's hands and give him a couple of instructions, and he could probably be, do a pretty decent job sanding. Right. But that just that touch that you have to develop a little skill, a little feel for it, that it really just – the stuff comes out incredibly. Gotcha. And it's just a completely different look and feel. And, and you know, I, I don't like the sand. Right. I mean, to me, it's like taking my laundry down to the to the river and beating it against the rock. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there's got to be an easier way. Sure, so you sure. sit there grinding, there's dust all over your face. What I like about these planes and scrapers is it makes finishing a lot like woodworking still. Yeah. It's yeah. not like I, you know, okay, I cut, I build, and then I sand forever. I cut, I build, and then I plane, and I scrape, and it comes out, and, done, and when I'm done, I forgot I was getting the surface ready. Yeah. Well, it's more of a – you stay more connected to the workpiece. There's not a, a motor and electric between you and the piece mm-hmm. of wood at that point. Yeah. You know, and, and really, I mean, it's every – you know, really every stroke, you know, you, you when you get down toward those fine, fine ends, yeah. you know, you put a stroke in, and you have to run your hand over it. Right. Because right. you start to go – instead of by sight, you're starting to do that by touch. Right. Absolutely. 
Oh, and, you, that know, makes sense. you really did develop that feel. Right. Well, you know, your fingers are, are so much more sensitive than what your eyes can pick up in terms of uh, surface, you know, and actually sure. touching things. So, all right, Dan. Well, that's a, a good explanation from two very different perspectives. If uh, Hopefully that helps you in your decision-making concerning uh, picking up a drum sander or um, not picking up a drum sander, depending and on And, Dan, what if you are going to roll out some pie crust, let me know when you're going to have it. Yeah, that sounds good. Come on over and taste this. We'll come over for some uh, dessert, maybe. Yeah, I'll bring the coffee. You bring the pie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So I think you got our next email there if you want to move along. Sure. This is from Scott or Tom or Tom and Scott. Tom and Scott. I'm trying to figure out. It's for Scott Um, or it's from Scott for Tom to read. For Tom to read. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I have been a longtime listener and now a first time emailer. I was wanting to know what is the best stain and finish to apply to children's toys. I'm a self-taught woodworker and have been making children's toys because they're small and easier to do in a weekend or so. I have always left them unfinished or just painted them, but now I want to show off the wood grain and make a, that makes a wood toy. I usually use pine because it's cheaper and easier to cut wood. Thanks, Scott. Okay. Interesting. Um, it, it's very interesting because, you know, I have two children, and believe me, when, when you're building for certain ages of kids, yeah. especially from, say, one to three, everything goes right in the mouth. Right. And, you know, that's how they discover the world. They, they chew on things. And mm-hmm. you don't want to have anything that's going to have any residual dangerous stuff in it. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, because, they, you know, the kids aren't going to understand to put things out of their mouth. They're going to start chewing on things. and They may get chips off. What, one thing that – and it's funny because you mentioned pine. There's, right. one, there's one finish that always looks so good on pine, and that's shellac. Okay. Now, shellac is, is a natural – what do they call it? Bug poop? What do they call it? Bug juice? Whatever. What do they call it? It's a natural bug poop. It's a natural bug poop. Not an product. artificial bug poop. It's it's artific- it's strained and processed. It's a, um, it, it's a secretion from the yes. last bug yes, over in India or Indonesia or something like that. Sure. And what what happens is, you know, if you get a if you get a prescription pills or if you get like candies or things like that, they're usually coated with shellac. Correct. It is very neutral. It is very non toxic. Mm-hmm. What looks better on pine than orange shellac is just great with pine. It's a very traditional finish. Very country-like, if I if I recall. That's a yeah, nice very finish. country-like. It gives a very rich kind of rustic look to it. Yeah. Um. And, and believe me, if you're going to build something for kids, I mean that is that is a bulletproof finish for children because you know even if they damage it, and that's this is the beauty about shellac. If they damage it, say they chew through it, they're not going to get sick. Right. But the thing is, you can also bring it back to the shop and actually repair that finish. Sure. Because shellac will dissolve in, 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 in uh, denatured alcohol. Right. So you wipe it down and put on another coat. It's black like new. Right. So that's, that's really – it's even better than paint. Now, the only problem I see with that, though, is what do you do when the kid's drinking a beer and he gets the beer on his toy? I was thinking more along the lines of like if he's drinking scotch right out of the bottle. <laughs> that that could, made probably a little bit more of a trouble with shellac. Could, yeah, it could um, do but, some damage. But drool will just wipe right off. There you go. Now, <laughs> do you, uh, now see, depending, I guess, on the age, I think if for me personally, I'm, I'm definitely a firm believer in the fact that all film finishes are non-toxic when cured. Yes. In, in theory. But yes. if it's my kid and my toy, 
I'm probably going to go on the safe side and just use shellac because I'm not going to take any chances. Um, so, you know, if, if the kid's a little bit older and now he's looking for something maybe a little bit more durable and he knows that the kid's got not going to gnaw on this thing, he just wants a really, you know, strong, durable finish, um, mm. then I see no reason to go for, you know, some sort of a standard uh, polyurethane or, you know, wiping varnish and just give it a good amount of time in the shop to, to cure and off-gas yeah, that, so that it doesn't it, smell. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people, you know, especially get to the end of the project, they want to rush to get that thing to the to the end user. Yeah. You know, if you've got it, you know, some people will still be tacky and they'll bring it in and set it in the house. Right. You know, it, it, you got to give it time to, to, to cure. Sure. And, you know, it, it may take a week. It may take two weeks. Yeah. To yeah. make sure, you, you know, if you're still getting that smell, it's still that volatile um, part of the, uh, the, um, the, the carrier. Right. It's still evaporating. Absolutely, yeah. So you, you want to make sure it doesn't smell of the well, finish. And there's another good advantage for shellac because that's going to cure quite a bit faster. Oh, just, I mean, you know, in about an hour, you're ready to take that to the kids yeah, with a little it... tight play with it, you know? Right, absolutely. Now, um, if you, you want to do now, if you want to do colors on it, you know, kids are attracted by colors. If you want to do something with colors, you know, maybe if they're really young, you, you do a mobile or something like that, something they can't, they can see and look at, but they can't really put in their mouth. Right, right. You know, maybe that's something you paint bright. And when they get old past the mouth phase, then you can do stuff like, you know, paint race cars or whatever. So just to be safe, if it was something that could wind up in their mouth, you would completely avoid color just to be safe? Yeah. You know, again, you know, I've got two kids and, you know, you, you watch them and they're, and they're so beautiful and they're growing up. The two little boys and, you know, they're so cute. They crawl around. Everything goes right in the mouth. So, you know, <laughs> for me, for me, it's like, okay, maybe it's just better I do it this way. Right, right. Now, I was looking around. I've seen, um, you know, it seems like a lot of the stuff that is really bright and colorful uh, as far as stain materials go, uh, typically those are the, – the manufacturer sort of produces them and expects them to be used on toys because it's probably the only wood products you're really going to, you know, make bright yellow and bright green and yeah, bright, bright blue. Bright green and all that other stuff. Yeah, and, you know, I can understand that. But again, still, you know – it's always best to err on the side of caution. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, yeah, you want to have that big, bright red fire truck you build, and you want to have that fire truck bright red. Right. Um, you know, I would read, you know, I wouldn't paint it personally, but if you think, you know, you you got to read that ingredient list. Yeah. You, know, you got to yeah. make sure it's non-toxic and no lead or anything, because, you know, what happened with uh, over in China with those toys that were recalled. Uh, you know, I know they had lead to paint. Oh, really? So, yeah, they had lead in the paint. So, you know, you don't want to make any mistakes and put anything out there that could be dangerous. Yeah, I guess, you, you know, know better. Especially putting that stuff in their mouth. They do it right away. Yeah, be better safe than sorry. I mean, yeah. the last, last thing you want is your kid to look up from playing with his toy and he's got, like, you know, blue all over, <laughs> all yeah, over their face. That might you know, be bleeding. bad. It, whatever's colored comes out the other end. Remember that. So. <laughs> that could be interesting. <laughs> Okay. All right. Moving on here. Um, you know, I don't even know who this question is from. I didn't write it down, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, he says, I love the show. Uh, it's a real good mix of information and entertainment. Why, thank you. Uh, I have a question about the Festool Domino system. Uh, it seems to be all the rage right now, and most people have used it, uh, That or most people that have used it say it's the best thing since sliced bread. My question, isn't the Domino uh, just a loose tenon joinery system? And doesn't Beadlock do a very similar thing for less than $50 retail? I think the Domino retails for like 700 yeah. I know the Domino system is more of a production machine, and uh, and there appears to be more choices and sizes, but is it is it really the only is that really the only difference? 
As an amateur woodworker who only uses his biscuit joiner uh, once in a blue moon, am I missing something? Uh, and if I wanted to experiment with loose tenon joints, would the beadlock system be good enough to start with? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, this is this is something I get a question on a lot, you know, because the the domino really did kind of take the woodworking world, or at least the forums, from what I've seen by storm. I mean, it's revolutionary. I mean, you know, to put the convenience of a biscuit joiner and the strength of a, of a mortise and tenon joint together, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just genius. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to because a lot of uh, er- the area that a lot of folks struggle in is the joinery. And to get flawless, you know, zero clearance, high quality joinery with, like you said, the ease of a, of a biscuit joiner, uh, it's definitely revolutionary. Uh, At the same time, you know, as as much of a fan as I am of this system and as much as I go in the shop sometimes and forget, you know, that I used to make tenons and mortises another way, um, you have to look at this realistically. Uh, I think you're a perfect example, Tom. You're, you know, a hobbyist woodworker who's very serious about his hobby, but you've got a wife and kids. You know, you've got a – You know, now – you know, when I bought my table saw, I figured that was probably going to be the most expensive tool I was going to put in the shop. Yeah. You know, and that was a, you know, a rigid table saw was about $600. And that is so far been the most expensive tool I put in there. Right. Um, I can't justify anything more than that sure. because, you know, I'm not making my living doing this. Right. But, you know, the beadlock system, you know, I, I've used it and it, it's great and all, but, you know, there, it, it takes it takes some practice to get it right. You know, you can't, you know, it's got a very tight tolerance as far as, you know, you have to make sure everything's aligned properly. Okay. You know, for, for, for scrap, you can put together an excellent uh, 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 mortising jig for your plunge router. There you go. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, I, I just cobbled something together a couple of weeks ago because I was going to start building some, uh, some mortise and tenon projects. And, you know, for, for, for a piece of quarter-inch plywood and a couple of strips of southern yellow pine, I put together a mortising machine that works great, right? And it, and it's, it's adjustable. It kind of clamps itself. Itself, you can center it and and just plunge right in and make your mortises. And um, you know, for the amount of time it took me to set up the beadlock and get everything working, I was able to do plunge. You know, plunge those mortises no time at all. Right. And, and they're not, and they're, a, they're super clean too. I mean, they're you're, very clean. Right. You know, I mean, the, the bead. Clean. The beadlock joint, um, I, I have used it a few times, and I, I bought it a few years ago and, in fact, uh, sold it just because I, I didn't really find myself using it at all. Um, if I was going to use a drill to make some sort of a joint, I'm just going to use dowels, which are pretty darn strong to begin they with. They are, sure. You know, and then you they have, make it easier on you, you know? Right. And the problem with the beadlock is you do have to either have the bit to create your own stock or you have to continually – uh, you know, buy more material. So that almost makes it, um, you know, like the domino where you're, you're kind of dependent on the company to buy. Uh, well, you could always make your own again, but, yeah, um, but again, you need the router bits, you need all that stuff. Yeah. You know, for, it's a pain. For, for three eighths inch, uh, you know, up, I've got a three eighths inch spiral upcut bit uh-huh. and that thing cuts some of the cleanest walled mortises I've ever seen. And, oh, yeah. and you know, and you know, if you don't want to cut the tenon on a table saw, you could turn around and mortise both ends and then just cut a loose tenon and stick it in there. Next thing you know, you're good as gold. Right. 
Yeah, if you're if you're on a budget, I would definitely say that your router being the multitasker, you know, the classic multitasker of your shop anyway, would be the go-to tool for that. Um, for me personally, when I when I did wind up selling the beadlock, the reason was because most of the time I wound up using my uh, hollow chisel mortiser, uh, which of course, again, another dedicated machine, certainly sure. a lot less expensive than you know than what we're talking about with the Domino to get a, a nice benchtop uh, mortiser, but might be you know if you're not ready to jump that far, that might be one of the the next steps that you could take for. A tool, and you can use it for other things too. But primarily, it's just going to be dedicated for uh, yeah, for, for the for, for mortising. mortising. And you know, if you go to any, you go to your library and just pick up any book on how to use a router. And right. I tell you, you can find dozens of designs for building a mortising jig. Yeah, and they even have designs for building tenoning jigs. Sure. So sure. it's not as if you know, you, you know, you could do both ends if you wanted to with just a router, and you could do them really quick. It, it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, no. you, you 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 just set out how to do it. I was watching again. Go back to Norm. He was doing his router one on one show. He was just doing it with his with his, uh, with his uh, edge fence. Right. He just measured in and just plunged and went, and it, yeah. it came out beautifully. Yeah, so you don't even have to build a jig. Right, and there are, there are times where I mean the main issue you've got your your fence guide there, and you you've got a little bit of uh, tipping action is the big concern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically I just uh, put it in the bench and butt up another scrap piece next to it, make sure everything is nice and even, and you should have no problem plunging down, keeping everything nice and steady, and just keep adding pieces to extend you know, the effective surface so that it's sure. nice and uh, nice and smooth, rides and, easy, and it's no problem. You know, just a little bit of careful marking on your end, and next thing you know, you're in business. And, you know, right. it, it takes it takes a difficult, you know, I mean, I'm a hand tool guy, but I'm going to turn to the router to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love to get say, a nice ch- a nice set of firmer chisels and uh-huh. start pounding away, but, you know, I don't know Ooh. if I'm going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know I would not. Um, you know, and of course, we're by no means knocking the domino. The bottom line is the domino is the domino, and I don't think the domino needs any more boosting. And it's, you know, I think it's uh, already a little cocky about itself. I yeah, sense a bit it, of an it, attitude. It's an incredible machine. And, you know, for, for a production shop, somebody who's got to make, mm-hmm. you know, a whole dining room full of chairs, go for it. I mean, if right. that's what you're, you're putting food on the table, then by all means. You know, that is that is going to be the piece of equipment you're going to want to get. Sure. But, you know, if you're just doing hobby things and one-offs, you know, hey, that router will do you pretty well. Yeah. I mean, well, the way I look at it, we've, you know, woodworkers have survived a very long time with a, without all of these, you know, great innovations. So there, it's never a question, a question of do I need this tool? It's typically a question of do I want this tool? Do I want this tool? Yeah. And, you know, again, like we were back with the with the uh, drum sander, you know, right. it's going to be an incredible time saver for somebody who's doing it to put food on the table. And, right. you know, if, again, if you're like me, that's when you get the hand planes out, you get the router out, and next thing you know, you're golden. Yep, Absolutely. All right, I think we can uh, close that one and move on to the next one. Yes, and this one is from Ski. Good old Ski, ski. with two E's. Yeah, ski. with two E's, yes. not, not I, although they'll be doing that soon. <laughs> yeah, Guys, that's true. Great show, great content. He's only saying that because I'm reading the question. Well, he knew you would be on the show. He you know, that, that's it. That. I mean, it's just Ski's all about it. Thanks. <laughs> Yet another Ski question about the basics. What is the drawback to making rip cuts with a crosscut saw blade on the table saw? It has more teeth and makes a smoother cut. Why not use it for ripping as well as crosscuts? Keep up the great work. Ski. Mm-hmm. You want to jump on this? Or you want me to? Uh, I'll let you jump up and down on it. I, I am a blade changer, Mark. You I, are. I, I'm a blade changer. Let me I tell would you, have never I, thought that just looking at you. 
you're looking, well, you know, what can I tell you? I'm, not, I'm a crossdresser <laughs> and a blade changer. There you go. Okay, here's, here's what I do. I've got a really nice uh, all-purpose, general-purpose saw blade. Okay. Okay. It, it's 50 teeth. It, it does a really nice job. And if I have to rip something very, very thin, I'll use it. Okay. But if I start to get into three-quarter inch stock and I have to make a rip, I'm going to go and change it out for a rip blade. A couple of reasons. Number one, let's take a look at how wood grows. You've got that whole bunch of straws and algae everybody talks about. It runs up the tree. Sure. So if you're cutting across, you're doing one thing. If you're cutting, if you're cutting, if you're cross-cutting, it's one thing. If you rip, it's another thing altogether. You get these big stringy curls that come out when you cut. More more teeth on that saw blade is going to burn your cut because there's not enough room in the gullets and the teeth to carry that out. That okay. stringy stuff is going to be there in those small gullets. You're going to get burning, and you're going to have to push like heck. And I've done oh, yeah. that. You're going to have to oh, push yeah. like heck to get that thing to rip. Right. And you run the danger of you know of stalling the blade and stalling your saw, and you know of course tripping the tripping the circuit and standing there in the dark. Sure. Um, you you also you get better cuts with these rip blades because there are fewer teeth, and it actually does that scooping. Again, let's go to hand tools. There were cross cut saws and rip saws for a reason. You know, you wanted to cross cut. You know, those 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 teeth were actually chiseling across right. the grain. They were taking that stuff out. When you're looking at that, you know, the rip cut. You know, you're actually out there. You know, ripping those stringy. You know, the lengthwise uh, sawdust out. It's a completely different look at sawdust. Right. So I will change blades when I'm doing work and I, you know, I've got no problem with it. I just have to remember to group my rips for one cutting session and my crosswords for another. Sure. Sure. It's just a matter of planning ahead to know that I'm doing all my rips once and then go back to the uh, crosscut blade for the joinery. Right. Well, that makes perfect sense to me, but <laughs> I'm, I'm lazy. You're lazy. I knew I'm, that about you. I'm a little bit lazy. And the only time I want to change that blade is when I've got to do some dado cuts. <laughs> so I sort of come from the other perspective where if I can get a good enough high quality blade, uh, let's say a 40 tooth, um, uh, maybe a woodworker two, forest woodworker two, or the Tenru uh, gold, uh, whatever it is, the gold metal series, mm -hmm. uh, one of these uh, hundred plus dollar blades at 40 tooth uh, configuration is a pretty darn aggressive blade. It's also pretty smooth cutting. So it really is meant to be that combination all-in-one style blade. And for some people, it, it, it's good enough. And for some people, it may not be good enough. Um, well, you know, that's kind of like, for me, that's kind of like making a combination sports, uh, sports car and dump truck. Two different <laughs> jobs, two very effective vehicles that do it. But you're trying to have this you know, sports car with a big dump truck in the back, you know? It's just a sports car on very big wheels. Is, yes. Is what it is. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, if, if, if I were running into problems two my two main things that I'm looking for that would tell me, you know what, this is not the right way to go. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing a rip and I start to get burning, yeah. that's when I know I should probably back down to a rip blade with uh, fewer teeth. Yeah. If, if I'm cross cutting and, uh, the cut is just not smooth enough, you know, yeah. if I'm actually uh, getting a really, really rough cut or the big thing is if I'm getting a, a lot of tear out in my plywood, that then tells me, okay, maybe I need more teeth and I should go up to maybe an 80-tooth blade. Um, 
to be honest with you, though, in 99% of the cases, the 40-tooth combo blade... Gonna, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do a lot of good work for you. Yeah, it's giving me satisfactory enough results that I say, this is, this is good enough. I don't see any visible tear-out. I don't have any visible burning. I might be stressing this blade a little bit more than, than you might otherwise if you were going between two different blades uh, specialized for the task. But it, it works really well for me. Um, but I certainly would never begrudge anyone for taking the time to, to pick the right blade for the job. You know, Mark, there's another point, too, you brought up. You said you were forcing the, forcing the blade. You know, really, at that point, you're also forcing the saw's motor. Now, I know you work on, you work on a paramatic, right? Yes. Okay, you work on a paramatic. And it, it's a big, what, three or five horse? It's a uh, three three horse you, you, yeah. that thing's gonna cut through like you could put a whole you know sequoias on that thing and just rip them down to the base. That, that's a good point yeah okay i've got a rigid i got a, I got a horse and a half and okay. you know if i'm you know if i'm cutting something and i notice that motor's starting to strain you know i've got to make a decision early on either i'm going to fight right. my saw or i'm going to just switch to the rip right and you know Actually, for me it's know, easier to do that that makes perfect sense when when i had my um it was either a one horsepower, maybe a one and a half horsepower craftsman. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's how easy it is for me to forget these things. Like I said, um, I used to have to do that all the time because I would try to work. <laughs> I know, seriously, uh, this is, this is, this is therapeutic for me. Um, when, uh, I, when just, I would try to put it on my bill. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, when I would try to do a long rip, I would get to that point where you just feel like that that motor is crying, you know, and you know that, you know what, you got to find a more efficient way to do this because you're just going to pop a, a circuit breaker or you're going to hurt the, the motor or something. So, yeah. you know, you want as much life out, you know, again, my, my saw cost me $600, maybe not yeah. an incredible amount of money, but I don't want to go drop another $600 on a new saw. No, of course not. So, I mean, I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'd rather spend the 50 to buy a really decent quality. I have a CMT rip blade. It's got, right. a, a, I think, 24 or 32 teeth, and that thing cuts like a dream. Right. Now, do you, uh, on, a, on a related topic, do you use um, thin kerf or full kerf on, on I, that particular I, saw? I'm a full kerf guy. I, um, you know, the, you know I, I tried a thin kerf once, and I had all kinds of trouble because the splitters, are designed yeah. for the full curve. Now I've mm -hmm. got you know this great combination splitter and guard combo, and okay. it's on, easy on, easy off. You know, Rigid really thought this thing out really well. I mean, I oh, you know, it's I can, actually I, I comes can, with the saw. Oh yeah, it comes with the saw. It's a combination, just one thumb screw. You know, it's set up on a post. You turn okay. the thumb screw, you pull it off, you make your data or whatever, and then you can put it right back on. It takes me six seconds. That's that's pretty good for a stock uh, product like that. And it's always aligned because once you get it aligned, it doesn't change alignment. Nice. So what you know what I do is you know I've got I've got it there and and, and that splitter I want to keep on. I've had some near you know <laughs> some scary moments with a little <laughs> bit of kickback. I'm I'm going to say you know a couple times you know I thought I had to go change shorts afterwards. <laughs> um, but it's it's I want to make sure I get that guard on and with if I'm using a thin curved blade I'm really not gonna have the use of that really effective guard sure and sure. splitter and you know I don't want to take that chance you know again this is my hobby <laughs> I have a day job they expect me to come back to every day so yeah you don't want a two by four sticking out of your gut so yeah trying to pull that out explain that you know well gee this happened at you know while I was at home you know I, I don't want to be doing that right so then the the point there is, I mean, the, the thin kerf might be technically the better option, but if you can't use your safety guard, you know, with the thin kerf, then obviously you're better off sticking with the full kerf. Yeah, that I mean, and for me, sense. you know, it, it just, 
it just it just seems to be the way it just seems to be the way to use it. You know, I, I, sure. I, put, that, I put that regular curve on. I know it's an eighth of an inch. Right. And I'm not really good at fractions. Three thirty <laughs> seconds. I'm sitting there trying to count on my fingers and toes, you know, right. I, I've really got to make sure it's an eighth of an inch, you know, to make sure that it, I could measure it. Right. I just I can't wait until somebody, you know, passes a law and we're forced to go metric. Maybe I'm alone there, but just, just so you I, know, back in like 1975, they did just a little secret. Uh, yeah, but why doesn't anyone do it? Hey, did you buy a two-liter bottle of soda recently? No, I didn't. I that's the only soda. place it's been a success. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I want I want it to be illegal for anyone to use <laughs> anything but the metric system, and I want uh, I want there to be financial uh, fines and things when when people do that because it drives me crazy. Well, you know, I mean, fractions, you know, it, it's kind of funny. You start dealing with it. You know, make it a 16th strong. Make it – you start thinking to yourself, what the heck? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at – I had to actually go by a, a tape measure that marked out all the fractions because that's yeah. how bad I am. Well, I've got that little project calculator. I mean, those companies would go out of business if, uh, you know, if they didn't have uh, woodworkers and construction guys to – to help out, but I mean that thing is I mean is literally a necessity when I'm planning things out and I'm trying to get exact numbers and dealing with you know thirty seconds and sixty fourth you know level fractions. It's such a pain in the butt. But yeah, you know. that, at that point I just closed my eyes, I set the rip fence, and just yes, I use the force. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that you know what that actually uh, completely off topic. That's one of the main reasons why I use relative dimensioning as mm-hmm. a building method instead of having to try to get all these perfect measurements because that drives me nuts to have to do that. So if I know I've got a space that is the size of the distance between those two pieces of material, I'd rather get a piece cut to fit that than even, you know, worry about how long it is. I don't know how long it is. I just know it fits. Five and 13, 30 seconds. I mean, you know, that's just crazy, you know, and and I sit there and I try to think to myself, how am I going to do this? The relevant, the relative dimensioning is pretty good stuff because you put it there, you, you mark it. And you know you're right. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to go and back think, to a tape measure. You know you're right. Exactly. And I think we need to uh, write the president about this. Well, this yeah. Is serious. When I'm king, that <laughs> king, and taco king bars of, uh, everywhere for everybody for free. You can be king of Florida. You got it. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna have my. I'm gonna be my own little potentate. It's gonna be a little banana republic. You're welcome to visit if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll head right on down there. <laughs> I'll make you minister of defense or something like that. I don't know. Sweet. Nice. I would love that. All right, Tom. Well, believe it or not, I think we have exhausted our uh, our time frame for today. It's um, over? It is over. It's over. It was, uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. And I got to tell you, I really think what we should probably do is start doing some alternating of, uh, of guest hosts. And uh, I know, um, you know, Matt's just got an insanely busy schedule. He sure. lives in a similar uh, domestic situation as you. And uh, I guess it's hard for him to, to, you know, pull up this much time every week and do it. So I think he's probably happier doing every other week. And if I could find some sucker to uh, sit here and talk to me for an hour, at least once a week, I think suckers are us right over here. (laughs) I I think we might actually have a show. Now, Mark, the only question is though, will the listeners put up with me anymore? That's, that's probably not. I've got that issue, you know, We'll find out. We'll find out as the uh, emails start uh, streaming in. Uh, no more Tom. No more Tom. <laughs> yeah, I want you people out there listening to this email and say, you know, do, do you want more Tom? Or is it like, you know, we've had enough of Tom. Yeah, I mean, when you get two, uh, two Jersey guys together uh, and give them microphones, that's not a good thing. And, you usually. know, we didn't, even, we didn't even touch on that, Mark. We're both from the Garden State. How could this be? We are. 
Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it, it's a combination for uh, either genius or disaster, one or the other. I'm thinking B. <laughs> disaster. Well, uh, I think we got through pretty safely this time. So, so far, so good. Now, you kept my, I kept the vulgarity level down to a minimum, so that's good. Yeah, well, we got the profanity filter on and all that <laughs> stuff, so I, I think I think we're good. I think we're both comfortable with, uh, you know, working around the curse words. So. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I just get very creative. I have two children. I have to learn how to do this. <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> good point. All right, Tom. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm sure we will uh, we'll see you again very soon. Okay, and uh, if you can see me, it means I've got a hidden camera in my house. I better be careful. Joey, <laughs> I didn't tell you I planted that there, by the <laughs> way. Streaming video. So. It works for the CIA, kids. <laughs> <laughs> that I do, that I do. All right, well, until next time, thanks for listening. And, uh, Tom, hey, we'll catch you later. Rock on, Mark. All right, take care. Talk to you later. Awesome. Whee!